Wisconsin mosque in Culver City. Members of the mosque are calling the incident a retaliation for this morning's suicide bombing that happened. The gist of the clip we were supposed to see <laughs> was that uh, um, the agent Jack Bauer stands there and says, "says Man, now I can't even say." It. <laughs> he says, "Yesterday, I was going to die for no reason. Uh, today, I have something to die for." That was the gist. And as I was watching that clip, I thought of what Jeff talked about last week. And Jeff asked us this question. He said, Is your faith in God strong enough to stand up against this world's persecution? And so I was thinking that we've been given a new life that gives us a choice for how we will live, how we will fight, and how we will die. So when I faced persecution and uncertainty of the future, I wanted to have that kind of courage. So I was trying to use that maybe as a tie-in to last week. Um, But today we're going to talk about some strategies for continuing our mission in the face of the persecution we talked about last week. So, um, why don't we pray? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you this morning and uh, we just want to hear from you, Lord. I, as, uh, as Jeremy was praying uh, during the music, uh, Lord, I also agree that um, my prayer is that you would speak around me, Lord, I pray that uh, your word would speak truth into the lives of the people here today, Lord, that we would have something to take with us um, as we face uncertainty of the future, um, that we would have some, uh, just some principles that we can apply to our lives today, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, maybe now I'd say welcome and good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Um, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Greg. I'm one of the deacons here at the firehouse. In fact, as Brad pointed out a couple weeks ago, I'm the only deacon at the firehouse. Um, Which uh, is fine. It's a little bit lonely being a deacon. Um, But it certainly makes deacon meetings easy. There's generally no disagreement. It takes about five minutes. I can usually do it in the shower or maybe on the way to work. Um, but it is my prayer. I know it's our pastor's prayer that uh, there would be some, some of you men in this church who would be aspiring to join me in this uh, position of service. Um, and it's my prayer, too, that... that uh, some of you would maybe I'm even praying for some of you specifically but I promise that if any of you do step up into that position we won't have meetings in my shower Um, that being said I I just wanted to give the brief recap Um, we've been in Acts as you recall and uh, we've uh, followed the early church as it grows Um, We've seen it grow in fulfilling the Great Commission. We've seen disciples made by the thousands. We've seen crippled men healed. And we've seen leadership appointed, including deacons, as we talked about two weeks ago. 
Uh, last week in Acts 7, Jeff recounted to us the story of Stephen, who was a deacon, and he actually died for it. So maybe you don't want to join me <laughs> in this. Um, but uh, we, need, we need to have a plan um, for carrying out our mission as our culture changes and it grows in its hostility towards believers. And if you don't think the culture is hostile, um, have you been paying attention? Best-selling author and speaker Sam Harris, he commands a tremendous uh, amount of praise from secular leaders and he's really popular on the web. But he's an atheist. And he says the following in his book titled The End of Faith. And I quote, It is time we admitted from kings and presidents on down that there is no evidence that any of our books was authored by the creator of the universe. The Bible, it seems certain, was the work of sandstrewn men and women who thought the earth was flat and for whom a wheelbarrow would have been a breathtaking example of emerging technology. To rely on such a document as the basis for a worldview, however heroic the efforts of redactors, is to repudiate 2,000 years of civilizing insights that the human mind has only just begun to inscribe itself upon through secular politics and scientific culture. And then here's the kicker. We will see that the greatest problem confronting civilization is not merely religious extremism. Rather, is the largest set of cultural and intellectual accommodations we have made to faith itself. End quote. So that was some big words. So let me paraphrase what that said to me. I think Sam Harris was saying, Believers, not only are you fools, but you should be silenced in the realm of culture, education, and politics. Sound like persecution to you? As this comes down from the intellects, it's made its way into our classrooms. How many of you here have had a teacher or professor who is anti-Christian? Yeah. We see this rising hatred for Christians spilling over into every aspect of culture, including film, music, literature, politics. And you know what? That's fine, as we're going to see today. And how do we deal with it? How do we face it with courage? Well, I think we start by going back to Acts. In Acts chapter 8, we're going to see how the early church responded to persecution in that day, and I think we're going to have some principles uh, we can live by. Unfortunately, the passage is not quite as long as uh, Jeff's passage from last week, but um, bear with me and we'll get through it. As you recall, Stephen was stoned, and he died, and it starts in verse 1. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. Remember, Philip was a deacon. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. 
with streets, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed, so there was great joy in the city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met a Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. <clears throat> so I'm going to give you today uh, three principles from this passage. I think you could probably find a hundred. Maybe we'll just start with three. The first one is pretty simple. It's to go. Remember, we're talking about how can we 
how can we carry out our mission in the face of persecution? And so this is the first principle is to go. We'll go back to the first eight verses. Remember, there was a great persecution that broke out at the church of Jerusalem and people were scattered and Philip went off to Samaria and began to preach the word. The key here is is pretty obvious action. To go. But we'll break that down a little bit more because that's pretty simple, isn't it? (laughs) The The first point of going, the first element of going is we need to preach the word. If we look at verse 4, it says, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. But when you face opposition, what is your tendency? It's probably to clam up. At least I know mine is. Um, But what do the apostles do? I think there's a good verse. Um, If you want, you can flip back to Acts 4. I think Rich talked about this a few weeks ago. verse says this, Then they, speaking of the the Jewish rulers, called Peter and John in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So what was Peter and John's reply? They said, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We talk a lot about sharing our faith here at the firehouse, so I won't kind of belabor that point. But let me give you a couple of questions that you can ponder um, as a test for your life. These are some questions I need to ask in my life, um, and I probably need to make some changes. First one is, are you willing to share your faith without reservation? Second one is, are you unable to keep silent about your faith like Peter and John? Can you legitimately say we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard? And the third one is, are you willing to be confident about your faith? Even when the culture is saying things like, be silent, you're a fool. Uh, The second element of of going is to go where people don't know about God. When you face opposition, what is your tendency? It's to clam up and I think it's also to retreat. It's easy to run away. We sometimes will joke about the three B's. Does anyone know what the three B's are? It's not the Better Business Bureau. I'm sorry. No, it's Bibles, bullets, and beans. There you go. The idea of head for the hills. When things get tough, I'm going to take my little flock and we're going to run to the hills. We just need our Bibles, and our bullets, and our beans, right? That would maybe be the tendency. Um, but that's clearly not what they did in Acts chapter 8. And that's not what we should do. You know, in my own life, some Christians have openly wondered to me why my wife and I would choose to live in downtown Denver. Um, they'll say things like, why don't you live in a more Christian-friendly place? And I don't know what they mean. Maybe they're talking about a small town, or maybe they're talking about the suburbs. Of course, I think Christians need to live in those places, too. Um, but my response is that we listen to God, and we chose to go where people need to hear about the Lord, which is everywhere. And so that's my question to you, is are you willing to go where people need to hear the Lord? I think most of you are here, and you probably have an answer to that question. The third way that we can go is in found in verse 6. 
When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. So we're going to talk about miraculous signs, and that's the third way is that we can show miraculous signs. Now, we'll, we'll talk about the miraculous part in a second here, but our tendency when we face opposition is not just to climb up or to retreat, but it's to be silent and to do nothing. But I think it's I think we should look at, at, at Philip here because he takes action. Um, I was going to have somebody come up here and do, and do a miraculous healing for you as a sign. No, I'm kidding. We're, we're, we're not going to do that. There's not going to be, be healed or anything like that today. Um, I think we need to look at this closely. Why was Philip performing signs? Was he doing them? Was he having signs for the sake of signs? The answer was no. He was having signs because it backed up what he was talking about. Um, I think we need to be very careful and not be deceived about signs for the sake of signs. As we read through Acts, we're going to see, um, we have seen and we will see that healings performed by the apostles and the deacons were signs that validated their testimony. They weren't healing for the sake of healing. They weren't healing for a show. Um, at that time, there was no New Testament written down to serve as validation of their testimony. It was their word, and so these, uh, these signs um, served to validate them. And then I think I would also add this, if we want to talk about healing specifically. Um, if you think back to the first century A.D., um, I tried to think about what, what was the situation with disease in those days. And I think we could find that paralysis and disease of the body were probably almost always terminal. Medical care was primitive at best. It was unavailable to most. There was really no gain associated from being sick, just aside, aside from maybe the ability to beg for handouts, which of course probably didn't make ends meet. Some diseases, like leprosy, even resulted in ostracism from society. And so in those days, a physical healing was almost the ultimate miracle because an instant restoration to health could not have any other explanation except the supernatural. But let's compare that to today. And today, I think we could say that disease is rarely terminal. And even in cases when it is terminal, there's pain and symptom management options. Paralysis is today considered a disability, and it's not considered a death sentence. Modern medicine is really cutting edge. Some people even go so far as to feign illness from per, for personal gain. Right, Kate Linden? <laughs> right, workers' comp is a big deal. Um, and people are, are trying to abuse that system. In general, today we see that a physical healing is viewed in light of the parameters of medical science. It's rarely called an act of God, but it's usually called, what, the miracle of modern medicine. So even though a healing today is significant, it really wouldn't hold that same weight as it did in the, in the time of Acts. But I would still suggest, set healing aside for a minute, I'd suggest that people who have not received the message of the gospel, particularly in our culture, are inherently skeptical and are looking for evidence that proves or at least convinces them of what we're talking about. Some of you here today might be like that. You might be looking for evidence that might prove what we're talking about 
And I think that if you are, you're probably looking for external evidence, but you're looking for evidence in the lives of the people sitting here and in my life. And that, fellow believers, that, that encompasses the signs that we're supposed to show to back up what we're talking about. Um, and so what would be some signs that carry weight today? Well, I thought of maybe five. You could probably think of some more. Um, financial responsibility might be one in, in a world where the economy is turning sour and people are not responsible with their money. Uh, that would be one way we can back up what we're talking about and follow God's principles for money. Another would be having relationships founded, founded on honor and purity, not on selfish things or on a physical attraction. And I want to salute you at the firehouse here. I think you're doing a great job with this. I think another thing would be marriages that stand the test of time in a world where 50% or more of marriages end in divorce. We can stand up and have marriages that last and honor God's principles. Another way would be to have children who have character. Um, Many of us go to the grocery store or go to the park and we see children who run wild. And that's not God's calling for us if you read the Bible. And so we can follow that and we can show that as a sign to people. And maybe the last way would be to think about the family as a unit and think of families that stick together. How many of you have come from a broken home? Yeah, um, how many of you know someone who's come from a broken home? (laughs) Everybody raise your hand. (laughs) And that's a way I think that if we can keep our families together and we can trust God, uh, we can show that sign. Now, are these signs miraculous? Well, we won't get into that debate. They're probably not. But are these signs meaningful? I think so. People I know who, who don't know the Lord find these things to be meaningful to their lives. So my point is this, is that we need to be ready to back up our faith with these life choices that resonate with the world around us. So the second principle here is we, um, we talked about go. That was very simple. The second principle for continuing our mission is to be humble. That sounds pretty simple, right? But the... I think the, the illustration we're going to use here is uh, we're going to look at the story of Simon the Sorcerer. It's really it's kind of the middle section of this chapter. I'm going to reread verses 18 to 20. When Simon saw the Spirit was, laying, was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So here's a question for you. Is money a factor in the administration of God's grace? Or maybe another way of saying that is can money be used to alter God's view of you and directly change your relationship with Him? No, she knows. Yeah, that's right. The answer, and for those of you who are familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no man can boast. So could we consider giving money a good work? Yes. Yes, yes we could. But can it affect God's grace? 
No. No, it can't. All right, walk with me here, people. All right, so what role does money play? Well, I would say this. Money is an influencer of your relationship with God. So you really have two choices when it comes to dealing with your money. The first is the Spirit can motivate your heart to care for someone in need so that you give of your money with a humble, cheerful, and obedient attitude. And the result is that you grow closer to God. Or your flesh can motivate your heart to give your money to someone in need, but your ultimate goal is to really see that giving come back around and bring you some kind of personal gain. So if we could sum that up, the essence of your choice with your money is this. How you handle your money is an obvious indicator of your humility. Our point is to be humble here. Let me say it again. How you handle money is an obvious indicator of your humility. Is anyone familiar with Hebrews 13:17? Nobody speak at once here. Nobody at once. I'll read it to you. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. For those of you who hang around with me, you probably know this is one of my passions right here. I am certain that there is no greater way to truly demonstrate a spirit of humility than to submit yourself to your leaders in your church. And so how does that relate back to Acts 8? What does Simon say? He offers them money and he says, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands they received the Holy Spirit. We see, he wanted to buy his way back into power and authority in the church. But what was the apostles' response? He said, may your money perish with you. I think it's interesting to note, what, what happened to Simon? Well, he's considered by many to have been the founder of Gnosticism, Gnostic thought, which is a name. We could talk about Gnosticism for days, I think, but just to give you the summary, the summary of it, it's an anti-biblical philosophy that denies the perfection of God and elevates the sin of men. And in fact, the early church created a term called simony. Does anybody know what simony is? It describes the sin of paying for power and influence in the church. But you, I know you're saying, Greg, I wouldn't offer money to our pastors to gain authority in this church. Yeah, I'd like to see anyone walk up to Rich and say, here's a check, brother. Now, I was thinking we could do some things differently here, right? I hope no one's ever done that to you, brother. Um, but I would make this statement. In God's economy of the church, money does not bring you power, authority, or leadership. I'm going to say that again. In God's economy of the church, money does not bring you power, authority, or leadership. So let's be very, very clear. If you ever find yourselves even thinking, you know, these pastors should do what I say because of how much I... You need to stop right there. Because you're in error. Because there's no humility and no submission in a statement like that or in an attitude like that. And I've seen it before and we don't need it. We don't need it. Be so careful and so cautious with this, friends. Please. And so I think this, this ties it back to the point of being humble. 
I think in this case there's, we could go through hundreds of ways that you can be humble but I think this is something that every single one of us has to deal with of how we're going to deal with our money and how our money relates to our church and so as we face persecution we need to just weigh this and we need to seek humility and I think this is the first way that we can step into being humble as we deal with our brothers and sisters so the third, the third and final uh, point here for how we can um, stand up under persecution and, and spread the Great Commission is to think right I think really the whole story of Philip with the Ethiopian really sums this up. I really point to verses 30 and 31 which say, Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? He asked. How can I, the Ethiopian said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So what's the simple summary here? The person who wanted to know about God's plan for salvation other person knew about it spoke up first person became a believer is there anyone whose story of how they came to salvation really differs from this at all? no because this is how the gospel is shared someone wants to know someone shares it they share it the other person believes it's really pretty simple so why was Philip I think we should look beyond that and say why was Philip successful in sharing with the Ethiopian? And the answer to that question is really simple. Philip had the answers. Specifically, in this case, he knew that this passage, which comes from Isaiah 53, was a prophecy about Jesus. And the Ethiopian said, can you explain this to me? And he said, yes, I can explain it to you. And he did. I just wanted to, as a brief aside here, some of you know too that I really love Isaiah 53. Um, I think it's really cool. Some of you may not know that for a long time, well, if you read Isaiah 53, and I, I won't labor you with uh, uh, reading it because it's kind of long, but you should read it sometime, maybe this week. It's a prophecy about Jesus, and it's very, very clear, and the images are very stark, and there's really, they really couldn't apply to anybody else. But they were written hundreds of years before Christ even lived. And so for quite some time, Scholars thought, oh, surely Isaiah was altered. The book was altered because it's just way too close. It really is, it sounds too much like Jesus. And they thought it had been changed through the centuries. But then in the 40s, the 1940s in Israel, a set of documents was discovered called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of these was a complete text of the book of Isaiah. And they were, when they were dated, scholars agreed, they dated anywhere from 100 to 400 B.C., so before Christ. And wouldn't you know, it was literally word for word what's in Isaiah 53 as to what we have in Isaiah 53. And so this is a tremendous answer. It was, hey look, here's this passage. This was talking about Jesus. This was written 500 years ago. And here's the answer, and here's the fulfillment. And we need to have those answers. And the way we can have those answers is to think right about God. You know, one of my biggest frustrations with our world is that many, many people are far more interested in what they want God to be 
instead of being interested in what God says he is you know I recently read a mission statement I was doing some searching on the web and I came across a website for a church and it doesn't matter which church it is because you could probably find hundreds like this I'm going to read you this mission statement this is from a Christian church it says we are an open and diverse congregation of seekers together looking for God's presence in our lives through energetic worship educational dialogue and serious service in the world we desire to develop a spiritual foundation for all aspects of living we are a growing outward looking congregation composed of people who are tolerant and curious about other religious traditions and who embrace a variety of theological perspectives you know what this said to me we want to know what other people think about God no, we're not really interested in what God says about himself you know another instance of this my wife and I just recently watched uh, this movie called Bridge to Terabithia it's a Disney movie it's based on a children's book that won some awards it does have a good soundtrack right not, not a terrible movie not a bad movie we were previewing it for our kids trying to decide if they were old enough to understand it we decided not because there were some themes about dealing with death of loved ones and remorse and shame and some things we thought maybe our kids were a little too young to deal with um, but in the film there's this main character and the film really establishes this girl as someone who just, just can't do any wrong she's just the ultimate she's really glorified but at one point she makes the following statement and I quote I seriously do not think God goes around damning people to hell he's too busy running all of this as she points to the world and look we might agree in principle about God's stance toward damnation and that's a discussion for a different day I'll let our pastors deal with that one sometime but, but really the underlying value here and it's throughout this film and you'll see it throughout culture is this it's the notion that we get to decide who God is we get to decide how he works and we get to decide what his sense of justice is and that's fine if you want to believe that everyone can believe something different right that's what our culture says just, just believe whatever you want but what happens when you stand before God at the end of your life do you think God's going to say well how did you define me I'll judge you by, by your standards or is he going to say well I am who I am and these are my standards and this is who I am and you will be judged according to my standards which is it he's going to be the second well that's what our culture thinks and our culture is is convinced that you can decide what you want it to be but the Ethiopian he was interested in what God is and he asked the question so I think we can be looking for people who are interested in what God is and so then how do we apply that how do we turn that into right thinking well, I think if we look at Philip we see he was prepared to respond to these questions because he was thinking right and so we can be prepared to respond to questions and so here's your practicals how can we think right about scriptures the first way is to understand the scriptures well how do you understand the scriptures Greg they're kind of confusing I agree they're confusing but they're not and you know how they get really confusing is when you don't read them and you really don't know what they mean. so your first way to understand the scriptures is to read the Bible 
you know, I was encouraged. I think it was you, Jeff. Jeff, you read the Bible every day, don't you? Even if you like are going to bed and you say, "Oh my gosh, I forgot," you get up in your closet while your wife's asleep, flip it open, and you read something. Bless my heart, brother. So read your Bible. And then I think the second thing is you say, well, it is really confusing, Greg. What can I do? Well, you know what? Ask and answer the tough questions about God. Ask the questions. You know, if this is going to be right, you need to challenge it. And ask those questions, but then answer them. It's not enough to just say, well, I don't really understand the idea of the Trinity, so it must not be true. Why don't you go out and find out about the Trinity? Well, and how do you do that? Well, I think that's the second point here is listen to the Holy Spirit. And there's two ways you can do that. First, you can pray and make your prayer a dialogue with God. And say, God, I don't understand the Trinity. Don't treat God like Santa Claus. And don't give him a list and say, I need this and I need that and I want this and can you do this? Well, you know, there's a place for that in prayer. And we do that every day and that's part of prayer. But say, God, I don't understand. Give me wisdom. And then you know what? You can do something practical. You can go out and seek counsel. You know what? There's three pastors here who know a whole lot about the Word. Maybe I know a little. Maybe I can point you in the right direction. There's some other people here. You're small group leaders and others. Ask them. Ask the questions. We're not afraid of the questions. If you don't understand the Trinity, ask us and we'll try to give you some answers. And then I think we can apply this, this right thinking um, by being aware of those who are searching for God. And I think that's a right thinking too, is that you know, Jesus gave us the Great Commission. That's what this whole series is about, right? Acts 1.8, the Great Commission. And so we need to be aware of those people who are asking those questions and saying, can you tell me about God? Do you know about God? I'm tired. I'm tired of having my own views of what God is. I want to know who God is. Can you tell me? So are we aware? And how can we be aware for that? I think there's two things. We can look for practical needs. We can look for people who are maybe at a transition point in their life. Maybe they're getting married or maybe they've lost a, a relationship or, or they've lost a loved one or they've lost their job or um, it all has to be lost. But just look for those practical needs, ways that we can help people. And then the second thing we can do is we can listen. Listen for those spiritual questions. And that coworker says, how come you don't worry very much? Or, man, why, why do you read your Bible? Or, what, how come you don't sleep in on Sunday mornings? We can have those. I mean, those are just really simple um, questions. But there's an answer there that leads us into the discussion and we can be thinking right about God so as we face this persecution and as we live in this culture where people are telling us we need to be silent we can really think right about God and we can cling to his scripture and his word we can understand it we can listen to it we can ask the question and we can look for other people who need answers so my final thought here to kind of wrap this up and, and pull it all together as I think if we, if we step back and we hold Acts chapter 8 way down, right, and we look at it from 30,000 feet, right, what do we see? We see, first, we see a comprehensive persecution, right? It's not just the pastor. In fact, it, it wasn't the apostles who were getting dragged out of their homes and thrown in jail. At least in Acts chapter 7, it was the deacon. And then we see Paul is dragging people out of their homes, just normal people, right? 
And so what was the effect of this persecution? You see that the believers were scattered. They, got, they, they ran away, they got scared. Well, you know what? What was the result? Well, what did Jesus say? He said, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And so it took this persecution for his command to be fulfilled. That these people were content. They were content in Jerusalem. But then they were persecuted and they were scattered. And you know what? Jesus said, do this. And they ended up doing it. And that is what the world doesn't get. The world does not understand that persecution makes God's kingdom expand. When Sam Harris stands up there and says, Christians need to be silent and we need to silence them. He's doing the wrong thing because we're just going to get louder and more people are going to join us. The very thing that the world is trying to suppress is the very thing that will gain traction and will advance. So that's the question I want to leave you with today. Is will you join us in advancing God's kingdom here at the firehouse? I hope you will. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, it's a difficult world that we live in. The world changes around us and there's a lot of uncertainty whether it's economic or political or social. In addition to all the normal uncertainty we face, Lord, we, we cling to you in this time. And God, we've, we're committed to this mission. As believers, we've, uh, we have agreed to join you in this when times are good and when times are bad and when things are easy and when things are hard. So Lord, I pray that we would be willing to go, that we would be humble, and that we would think rightly about you. We would look for ways that we can answer questions. And God, for those who are here today who maybe don't know you, who are not believers, Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts. Ask them to, I ask that you would move them to ask those difficult questions, Lord, and, and to test us, Lord. I pray that each person who's in this room would come into a relationship with you, a saving relationship by your grace so that we can move forward together into the uncertain future. God, I just pray that you would lay these these principles on our hearts that we would uh, we would apply them to our lives each day. I thank you for my brothers and sisters and for each person who's here today. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks for being with us this morning. I hope you have a wonderful Sunday. Hopefully we'll see you Wednesday night at small groups next Sunday back here at 9 o'clock for prayer. And of course for that little thing we call the Super Bowl next Sunday afternoon. So, thank you.